words uh, to, to Timothy in particular, but to us. It's the, his last written words before he was ultimately executed in Rome. And in this final plea, this is what Paul is doing. He is, he is pleading with Timothy, and he's going to speak about potential threats that exist and, and that are coming to, to Timothy and to those around him. And Paul encourages Timothy to work hard and to use these best tools that he can to defend himself against this threat. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. But under, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So again, as I mentioned, 2 Timothy is Paul's plea to Timothy. It's his pastoral plea as a, as a father figure who loves Timothy like a dear son. It's his plea to make much of God's Word in his life. Okay, the first chapter of 2 Timothy is all about embracing God's Word. Uh, the second chapter is all about teaching God's Word. Chapter 3, then, is really about defending and understanding the importance of God's Word. But Paul actually starts chapter 3 by speaking apocalyptically. Right? He's giving a bit of a prophecy. He's saying, uh, re- he refers to in these last days. And I think this phrase gets uh, misused and misunderstood, but in a nutshell, it's essentially the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, and then his coming descension back to earth to establish his kingdom. It's everything in between. It is, it is what we would consider the church age in history. It's the last days. Now, there will be last, last days, but Paul is speaking here as, as any time post-ascension uh, that, 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 that we are now living in before Christ returns. And Paul begins to describe what people will be like during this age. In these last days, there will be uh, a few very specific things to be aware of with these people, right? First, Paul says that they will be lovers of self, characterized by loving money, being proud and arrogant, abusive, rejecting authority without self-control, not loving good. They are lovers of pleasure and of self rather than lovers of God. They're more interested in themselves and their glory than God and His glory, right? Secondly, they have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. They are, there's a lot to unpack here, but this is speaking about false teaching. Okay, it's speaking about false teaching. False teaching has no power because it is not of God. Okay, it does not contain the Holy Spirit, which means it has no power to save. Uh, it has no power to transform. It has no power to convict. False teaching is powerless, godless, hopeless, and damning. And so Paul says avoid it and avoid the people that teach it. Okay, avoid it. And then look at Paul's language. These teachers, they, they creep in and persuade away weak women. And this is not a statement on women. Okay, this is a statement on who are potential targets for these false teachers. Okay, they go after people who are burdened by sin and led astray by, by passions, people who are learners but never finding truth. They're the perfect target for false teachers. 
Paul says they're equivalent of Janus and Jambres, who, who Jewish tradition tells us were the magicians that Pharaoh brought in. Uh, when, when Moses came to speak to Pharaoh, and, he's, and, and, and Pharaoh says, well, my magicians can do that, and they, they come in and they opposed Moses. This uh, Jewish tradition tells us that, that these Janus and Jambres were these guys. And, but just like these magicians who were opposed to God and his truth, but were powerless to do anything about it, that's how these false teachers will be. And I want us to kind of slow down and, and consider some things for a minute. We, we understand the idea of, of false teachers, right? We, we, we recognize them. They're prevalent in our culture. And some, some of us are old enough to remember uh, guys like David Koresh and the Branch Davidian Compound and, and, and like Heaven's Gate and, and some of these cults that clearly are, are you know, crazy, off the reservation, and dangerous, right? We, like we, we know those types of things. But what about the false teachers that... that, that are getting a little bit closer to what we would consider, you know, historic orthodoxy, right? Like, we would, we would not consider it historically orthodox, but it sounds like it could be scriptural, right? Something like, uh, you know, these Christian preachers, you know, the, the prosperity gospel, if you want to be rich, right? I've been looking for someone to tell me what is true, and what I hear is that, that if you do these things, you will be rich. Well, that sounds real good. I want to be rich, and all I have to do is send in some cash? Sign me up, right? Or what about, uh, you know, teachings on, you know, gender and, and sexuality and, and, and marriage, right? We, we want, uh, you know, these long-lasting relationships. That's not what the Bible was talking about. They were, it was talking about something else with these long-term monogamous relationships. It doesn't matter who, as long as that's what you're participating in, right? We, we want people to love each other well. We want people to be free to love whoever they want to love. It sounds sounds closer. Or what about sick or lame people who desire to go, you know, see, uh, you know, one of these Benny Hens or, or somebody that will heal them, right? You know, will sling his jacket at you, and, you know, you just fall over, and you're healed. Like, that sounds pretty good. I've been lame my whole life. Sign me up, right? These are false teachings and false teachers. They are opposed to God's truth. They are in opposition to God's Word. We looked at, we saw this in the book of James. They are making themselves in opposition to God's word. And Paul tells Timothy, avoid them. Avoid them. We don't have any business associating ourselves and aligning ourselves with that kind of teaching, right? We, we need to be ever aware of, of the influence that we are allowing into our life, especially in contrast to the amount that we are allowing God's word into our life to influence us. And this leads us to our, our next section in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in view of this, uh, these, this grievous season uh, in which wicked men and false teachers will go from bad to worse, Paul exhorts Timothy not to relax in his pursuit of godliness. Okay? D rather, double down, press in, be more uh, attuned and more trained in, 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 in 
pursuing godliness. Paul says, these false teachers, and that's not you, Timothy, these false teachers, you follow me, right? You follow me. That, that, don't be like them, Timothy. You have followed me. My teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings. You know the difference between a real teacher and a false teacher, is what Paul is saying here. And for the record, Paul is not bragging by any means, right? Paul, Paul I believe, is a humble man, but he also recognizes his role as uh, an apostle, and an apostle to the Gentiles in particular. In the book of Galatians, he actually goes to James, John, and um, uh, Peter, and they decided that just as Peter is the apostle to the uh, Jews, that, that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He recognizes that that role was not of his own doing, though. Right? He, he didn't ask for it. Paul, Paul was given that responsibility by the Lord who chose him for that role. And Paul has stayed faithful. He's taught faithfully. He's conducted himself faithfully. He's loved well. He's remained steadfast. And he's also suffered persecutions because of it and other types of sufferings throughout his ministry. But Paul has remained faithful to, to uh, or God has remained faithful to Paul during those trials. Then Paul says something that's actually probably fairly challenging for many of us to hear. I hope it's challenging on some level, but that's that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, that you will be persecuted. Like, you will be persecuted. Not you might be, you will be. Not only will people who desire to live godly life be persecuted, but the people, these, these evil people, these false teachers, they'll go from bad to worse, which is going to make the, the, the possibilities of persecution even more likely, okay? They will continue to deceive people and will continue being deceived. And I actually, you know, I, I actually struggled with this a little bit. I understand conceptually that, that if we seek to live a godly life, we'll be persecuted. Um, but I don't, I don't personally feel particularly persecuted. You know, I think we have this idea that all persecution looks like, you know, what we see on TV, in, in particular to religious persecution. But we're pretty, we're, currently, I feel like we're pretty insulated from a lot of that for now. A lot of the physical religious persecution, it t- does take place in pockets, you know, in our country. And it's, you know, people are beginning to rage. But as a whole, we're, we're fairly insulated from that at the moment. So then I want us to think about then why persecution happens at all. And it happens because, you know, people who, who do not believe in God or do not submit to Him as Lord or in making Him, do not consider Him God and Lord, that they are making, as we talked about, making Him an enemy. They want to live the way they want to live and do the things they want to do and worship who they want to worship and how they want to worship. And that's all good and fine until you put the truth of God's Word in front of them or the Scripture in front of them. And sometimes, a lot of times, it doesn't go bad. I mean, we're supposed to do this, right? You know, sometimes when we present the truth to an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit changes their heart, changes their eternity. You can laugh. It's okay. No, I'm kidding. Um, sometimes when we present the truth to an unbeliever, they, they, they are convicted of their sin, they embrace God by faith, and they are, their eternity is changed. And then other times, we, we have these ongoing conversations with people who don't believe in us, and it's civil, and it's like, you know, I just don't believe it. You have your way. I have my way. And that's okay, too. But, but there is this reality that, that sometimes, as a whole, the gospel is going to uh, be like sandpaper to the ears of people who don't believe and to their hearts. It is going to uh, harden their hearts against it, right? We don't, we don't need to go looking for persecution. 
But it, it will happen if we live a godly life. And here's the reality for us. I think more often than not is that we need to be willing to say the hard things when the time presents itself, regardless of the outcome, right? We need to be willing to do that. It's, it's what, what, what could that look like? We don't know. It could be, uh, you know, someone or, or, or something. We need to be able to stand up for someone. We need to be able to uh, not participate in certain things. And, and some of these would be to our own detriment, whether at work, in school, uh, in our friendships, in our families, because we are making a stand for Christ and His Word. Jesus says in Matthew 10, uh, 34 and 35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. But just a few verses later, he also says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? We, we have to be willing to, to lose our life, as it were, maybe physically, maybe a bit more metaphorically, spiritually. But in that, we will find it. We will find it. And this is a theme Jesus goes back to over and over. In John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so for us, we have to go back to, are you willing to, to say the hard thing, to do the hard thing, knowing very well that it may bring a type of persecution into your life? You might lose a relationship with a family member. You might lose a, a, a job. You might lose a friend. You might be violently attacked. Are we willing to lose our life that we may find it? And I think our danger is that we can become so, so comfortable because we're a, a bit insulated that, that we forget that hard conversations or, or broken relationships even or standing up for what is right is a part of the Christian life. It's not an abnormal part. It is a, a part of the Christian life. So are we willing to do that? Paul's exhortation to Timothy is that if we teach what is true and do what is right and live this way, you will see persecution. Maybe it's not a lot, but you will see it. Because as the days continue and, and as our, our growing in godliness is happening, unbelievers are also growing, but in the other direction. They're going from bad to worse. So be ready. Hold fast to what you've been taught from a young age, the Word of God. Parents, I just want to take this opportunity to exhort you to teach your children God's Word, right? Teach your children God's Word. It is a, our responsibility as Christian parents to teach our children God's Word, you know, first, we have to know it. We, we can't teach what we don't know. We have to learn the Bible. We have to learn the Scriptures. We have to learn theology, how to think, how to apply the Scriptures to our life, and, our, and how to apply the Scriptures to other people's lives, and then we are to teach it. We are to teach it. We are to teach it to our children. What li lesson in life is more important than the knowledge that can make a child wise for salvation? What lesson in life is more valuable than the gospel for our children, that, that all of us are sinners in need of grace, which is made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What lesson can you teach them that is more helpful than to realize in their time of trial that God is the God of all comfort who can comfort them in every affliction? We've got to be teaching our children, but we've also, this is, this is the hard part, <laughs> we've got to be like Paul. We've got to be living a life that is, that is worthy of this gospel message, right? We, we need to be living a life that backs it up, right? We don't have to be perfect, but remember, we are supposed to be modeling Christ-likeness 
for our children. When we do this, praise God, we're doing it right. But also when we don't do this, it gives us the opportunity to come to them and to repent and to show them that, hey, mommy and daddy need grace just like you do. We need Jesus' forgiveness just like you do. We are not perfect, but we need to be striving towards this end. You know, it's the old adage, you know, you, you're caught more than taught, right? We need to teach them, but they need to catch it from us too. All right, so what makes all of this possible? What are we to work to train ourselves on? What are we utilize? What is the best tool against the threat that is ever around us? Let's keep going. Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is definitely one of those passages that, that we have heard many times, uh, uh, you know, a, a coffee mug verse, as it were. But I want us to, to, to I want to work to try and give us gravity again, right? Give this passage the weight that it, that it deserves, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable, right? One thing that we might hear from people these days is that, well, the Bible is a book that is written by man, so why would you, why would you devote your life to it? Why would you do what it says? It was written by man, and yes, God used human authors, but when it says all Scripture is God breathed, Paul is saying, Scripture owes its origin and its contents to the divine breath, not to humans. Okay, it is breathed out by God. The human authors were powerfully guided and directed by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote is not only without error, but of supreme value for man. Okay, it is everything God wanted it to be and everything humanity needs it to be. It is God's word to us. The God of the universe spoke and he has been speaking from the beginning, which is good because we need, needed and need him to speak, right? We needed him to speak. We, we were created a blank canvas. We are not creators of information. We are receivers of it, okay? We are synthesizers of it, and we live out of what we believe about any given topic, okay? So we are receivers to be informed, and God speaks to us to give us the information we need. If God didn't speak, we'd be in trouble. That's our reality, because everything that we have in the whole world is not enough to give us what we actually need. And this theme, again, runs all through Scripture. Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 8 that, that, that God had allowed them to go hungry, to, to humble them, and to teach them. You know, he, he fed them with the manna, but it was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. God speaking into our lives is what we need. It's more important than food. It is more important than the air we breathe. When Satan tempted Jesus because he was hungry with turning the stone into bread, Jesus quotes this very passage. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? Do we need bread to sustain us? Absolutely. Can, is that what gives us true life? Not even close. In John 6, we, we studied back some time ago, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he goes back to Capernaum the next day, and they come, and they, and, and they want more of him, and he says to them, you're here because I fed your bellies yesterday. Right? You're here because you're hungry again, but, but that bread has no value. The God the Father gives you the true bread, which is me. I am the bread of heaven, and I give life. Eat my flesh, which is to say, believe in me and the words that I speak in my teachings if you want to find true life. So the words that God speaks are what we need. And if it is God's word to us that when he speaks we need it, it only makes sense then that it is profitable. So then what is it profitable for? What is it profitable for? Well, Paul gives us a list and, and, and he gives us this list to help us know what it is profitable for. First, it's profitable for teaching. 
This word means exactly what it says. <laughs> it is for instruction. It is for uh, teaching. It is valuable for learning information. It is profitable for imparting knowledge concerning God's revelation in Christ. But it's more than that. All Scripture, all Scripture makes us wise for salvation. It tells us the history. It tells us the meta narrative. A lot of what we're talking about tonight is is laws, uh, you know, that that you know might seem tedious to read through. Census that is tedious to read through. But it all has purpose. It all is profitable for, for learning about God. It, it teaches us, you know, the laws are, you know, how to, how, how to be healthy, how to have God continue to dwell in the midst of the camp, you know, when and where to go, how to be clean versus unclean. For God, who is creating a nation out of this people, it's hugely important, right? And there's things that we, can too, too, can learn from it. But it also plays a part in the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is to say that that was a covenant that was meant to fade away because the new covenant was coming that we learned about back in Genesis through the covenant to Abraham, right? So it is all profitable. It's not just making us wise for salvation. It is all profitable to help God learn how He's interacting with us throughout history. And, And of course, it does have instruction for us, teaching for us, how the new covenant plays itself out. What is the law of Christ? We, we learn all of those things. How is one saved? We learn it through the teaching of the Scripture. Secondly, it's profitable for reproof, and these are war- warnings based on God's Word. Warnings based on God's Word. Occasionally, warnings must be issued. Errors in doctrine and conduct must be addressed in the spirit of love. Dangers must be pointed out. False teachers must be exposed. The Scripture is the means by which we reprove, and we, we reprove and we rebuke errors. When we correct something, it isn't supposed to be us calling something out that we don't like in a person, okay? It is supposed to be seeing something in, in the Scripture that doesn't line up with people's lives, and we go to them in love and put the Scripture before them. And it is God's Word that actually reproves people, not my opinion. But then it, that leads to correction, Okay, so correction corresponds directly with reproof. Is Reproof emphasizes kind of the negative aspect, right? Correction leads to the positive, right? It, this is more the, the shepherding, the pastoral, the, the loving care work of the Scripture. Reproof should never be done in, in isolation, right? It always comes with correction. When we address something uh, wrong with the Scriptures, when we point out an error, we also use the Scripture to correct, right? We, we, we show, hey, we, we, we don't act that way. We put that way off, and we're transformed by the, the right information. Well, well, then, if I'm not doing it right, what do I do instead? Oh, I'm glad you asked. This is what the Scripture says, how we correct that thinking, that behavior. We never leave someone in a state of rebuke. Rather, we show them, as the Bible would, what to put on instead. How should we live instead of that way? Correction is meant to be restorative because it comes as an encouragement from the Scripture. And then we are to be trained in righteousness. It's profitable for training in righteousness. We are to be trained on how to live and how to act and how to love and how to care for people, how to be people set apart from the world. And all Scripture is profitable to this end for this type of training. So the question is not really, is it profitable to these, for these things? Or is it profitable to these ends? The Scripture says that it is. I think the question for us ultimately is, am I willing to to submit to the scriptures to this end, okay? Am I willing to submit to the scriptures to this end? Am I willing to be taught and reproofed if necessary, corrected and trained in righteousness? Am I willing to submit to that? Because according to Paul, when we submit to this, we are then being made into something different. We are being made into something different, and that is complete, equipped for every good work. 
And what does it mean? Because I think if we're not careful, if we're complete, equipped for every good work, we're just going to go out and think about all the good things that we can do, all the good actions that we can conceive and do and try. But that's not really what is the point here. Again, going back to John 6, and I think this is so key for our understanding, Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And the people say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The good work of God is to believe in Christ. Full stop. From Jesus' own mouth. This is the good work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Friends, we talk a lot about obedience in here. I mean, we, we, we believe that we should be obeying the scriptures. The Bible says that when we obey the commands of God, it shows that we actually love God. But to be complete and to be able to do the good works that God calls us to ultimately means that we are being perfected in our belief of who he is. Okay? We are growing in a deeper belief and faith and trust and reliance on God. We are solidified in our foundation that Christ and his love for us and his grace and mercy towards us is exactly who he said it, what, he, what it said it was, what he said it was. We are being made complete in our belief that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And friends, when we believe this, obedience flows. Okay? When, we, uh, when we truly believe that if we lose our life, we will find it, obedience flows. When we truly believe that we don't need to worry about the things of this world, but rather we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, when we truly believe that, then we start to pursue the kingdom of God and His righteousness to the degree that He is asking of us. And we begin to care less about the things of this world, and we begin to trust that He will provide. We're, we, can, we can give more of ourselves away because we actually believe that He will provide the things that we need. This goes back to what I said at the very beginning. There are threats everywhere to our belief in God. And in our belief in who he is and who he says he is, there's a threat from the enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a threat from the sin that permeates uh, the unbelievers and who, are, who is making it, them going from bad to, to worse in this world and its influence on our culture and on ourselves. There's also the internal threat, right? We are in these bodies that are you know, waging war in our members, right? And, and, and I, I know I say this a lot, especially recently, but like one of my favorite things about these passages that talk about the Lord's return is that Paul is, he says, like, get really excited. Why? Because you're going to get your new body. Like, when Christ returns, we get, we're out of here. We're out of this decaying thing, and we get our, our, our eternal, unsoiled body that is decaying. And, and the currently, currently, then, the only hope for us lies in our belief in Christ and his ability to be who he says he is and his ability to do the things he says he will do. And when we believe rightly and firmly, we will be less inclined to wander, as David spoke about last week. We don't, we don't wander into God. We actually have to work at it. We have to be trained. We have to be reproved. We have to be corrected. We have to be trained in righteousness. We have to be taught. When we believe mightily in the power of God, our minds are more attuned to sin in our life and the sinful influence that, that is coming in, and it grows our desire to obey God and to put sin to death. When we believe that God is good and right and holy that he sent Christ to die and that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, we, we will want to glorify and please him with our whole lives. But friends, the only way we're going to solidify and establish this is through being taught and reproofed and, and corrected and trained in righteousness through God's word because he spoke it. And because he spoke it, it's profitable. And it's profitable to the end that he says, which is to make us complete. We will be ready to do whatever comes our way because, because we have been gone through the ringer of sorts of, of going into God's word and being taught by it and again being reproofed, corrected, and trained. And so as we close today, I've got two questions. Two questions for us to consider 
First is, do you believe this? Do you believe that God has spoken His Word to us, and because He spoke to us, He has given us the words of life, which is profitable for life, because it teaches us and it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness so that we will be complete, more solidified in our belief in God, that He is who He says He is, and out of that flows obedience. And if you, and if you don't believe this, obviously I would love to talk more about it with you, but do you believe this? And if you believe this, my other question is, are you willing to or are you submitting to it? Right? Are you willing to be submissive to it? Are you submitting to it? Are you willing to be taught and reproved and, and, and trained in righteousness, corrected? I mean, listen, I love being taught the Bible. I love teaching the Bible. I love being taught the Bible. I love having conversations about it. You know what I don't like? Reproof. I don't like being told that I'm doing it wrong because I have been trained and taught by the Bible, and I know the Bible. And who are you to tell me that I don't know what I'm doing? or that I'm doing it wrong. What do you mean I sinned? I don't like being told that I got angry. I don't like being told that I didn't do it right. Reproof is hard. Being corrected is hard. Are we willing to submit to being taught, to being reproofed when necessary, and being corrected and trained? Are we believing that it's actually profitable when someone presents the God's word to us and says, I love you so much, you're doing it wrong. Try this instead. It's hard. It is hard. We push back against it. We want to push back against it. It's not a matter always of, is the Bible really the things that it says it is? It's more often than not is, am I willing to submit to what the Bible says that it is? These are God's words, and they are words for life, so that we may find it. Without them, we are suffocating. We are going hungry. We are not living the way we are intended to, to live. So as we turn this morning to the Lord's Supper, we are, you know, which is really something that shows that we are submitted to God's ways, that we we believe that Christ died for our sins and rose from, from the dead and, and, and that we celebrate this together, right? But we, we want to be submitted in all areas, right? We want to we believe this. We do believe this, and, but we want it to permeate in all. We want to be complete. We want to be complete to, do, to believe everything that God has called us to believe. So are we willing to submit? And then I want us to think about areas maybe where we aren't submitting. You know, we've all got them. We've all got them. You know, maybe one day we do the hard work of asking our people that we love and are close to us, hey, what are some areas that you see maybe I'm not submitting like I should, that maybe I need some reproof, right? And do, people, do, do it with people that you trust because, you know, there are probably always going to be people around that want to tell you all the ways that you're doing it wrong, right? Again, it's not, it's not opinions, right? It's what the, the Word says. But as we go to the table this morning, I, I do want us to just consider, Lord, I do believe this about your Word. And there are bound to be some areas where I'm, I'm not focused. So first, thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for dying for us, for forgiving us of our sins. And secondly, are there areas that I need to submit more, that I need to, to trust you in more, so that, that I could be complete and ready to do the things that you're calling me to do, to believe you for who you are, and then to do the things that you bring into my life. So let me pray. If you're, if you're serving this morning, you guys can come on down, and I'll, I'll, I'll pray, and then we'll... They'll, they'll pass it out as we normally do and just hold on to it and we will uh, we'll take it together. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for speaking, for speaking words that are, are profitable for us, for your word that teaches us, that reproofs us, that, that teaches us uh, and corrects us and, and trains us in righteousness, Lord. Lord, we, we need it. We need it more than we think we do sometimes. We need it more than we know. But God, ultimately, we know that the word of God that you have spoken reveals you to us in a way that allows us to know you and be with you forever. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for Christ who came, lived and died, and rose from the grave 
so that we could be with you forever. And so, God, as we turn to the table this morning, I just ask that you would uh, remind us of the goodness and mercy that you have towards us and, and help us, convict us uh, areas that we need to submit maybe to your word in, in, in new and in, in fresh ways, knowing full well that the promise is that if we lose our life, we will find it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.